Well, good morning to you. If you heard the uh, camp clap over there, we've got uh, some campers from Camp Liwa. And uh, hey, guys. I don't know what the response to that is. <laughs> awesome. There we go. Good to have you. Oh, this morning, I walked outside and I had sort of that strange, that eerie feeling, not because it's Halloween, but because the Chinook winds blew in, right? Like, whoa, what is this warmish kind of air that we have outside? I didn't get the Arctic blast, so that was kind of nice. Uh, I have some good news for you. Actually, a thank you, first of all. Uh, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and this month, you guys have been just loving us so well and so generously. And um, there's just one last thing you could do for me. That's if any of you have an ab blaster or something like that, I'm gonna need it now because you guys fed us and gave us treats and just just loved us very, very kindly and generously. Um, so on behalf of a pastoral staff, I say thank you for that. And I sincerely um, want you to know that um, we all of us feel like we serve in a very enviable post here to serve you all to be in uh, Bethel Church, Fairbanks, Alaska. So thanks for just being a great church. Uh, last of all, good news. After many weeks, we are gonna get out of chapter one in the Gospel of Mark. So we're just cruising now. We're just picking up the pace. We're actually gonna start in chapter one and we'll get to chapter two. So would you bow and pray, pray with me? <clears throat> Our Father, we want to remind ourselves again of how wonderful it is to be secure in the family of God. We don't want to take your great grace for granted. Lord, we get to sit in this room with brothers and sisters in Christ, with the word of God in our lap, in our own language. We get to sing openly and loudly praises that minister to our souls, and we pray, bless you. And yet in all of these things, Lord, the best is still that you've brought us into your family. You did it by your grace, by your mercy, and we don't want to lose sight of that or take it for granted. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for making us yours. Thank you for the security we have in the body of Christ because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Yeah, I should have, I was gonna point to you guys and just give the signal. Let's go back and do that again. Uh, if you'd open your Bibles to Mark chapter one, verse 40 is where we're gonna start. As a kid, I um, grew up around military bases in Southern California, um, specifically George Air Force Base. Has anybody ever been to George Air Force Base? Yeah, no one first service either. It's real, I promise you. Uh, but that's where my, my parents were. Uh, they worked with the Navigators Missions Organization, which really focused on uh, military. At least that was the part my dad was uh, connected to. And so I just loved uh, being around uh, military folks. And even well into my teen years, uh, I thought I probably would go into the Air Force. Uh, my grandfather was in the Navy. Um, he was an, a minesman for the Navy. And um, he fought in World War II and uh, also the Korean War. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force and he had a pretty cool job. He actually, for eight years, he, um, he took film out of the U-2 spy plane and the SR-71 and developed it. 
And so he was kind of a part of that whole process. The SR-71's got to be the coolest plane the Air Force has ever made. I'll just throw that out there. Pretty cool. I'm probably going to be in trouble with a few pilots here later. That's all right. Uh, but that's, that's kind of where what I grew up in and around, and, and I loved it. I loved it. As a kid, I loved being around jets and pilots and officers and sort of that whole arena. And then I learned about special forces, special forces. And I thought, ooh, ooh, a whole other rung on the ladder maybe. And I'm kind of have this achiever personality type. So that appealed to me. And so even as I was getting kind of closing out high school, I was thinking, I, I want to go to the Air Force Academy. Uh, and that's kind of the, the, the track that I was on. And then uh, the Lord changed my heart. And, um, and now I'm in the Lord's army is what I like to say. You know, whenever I get asked about a military discount because of my hair, I think, at the store, you military, I say, well, I'm in the Lord's army. And uh, I've actually gotten a discount once or twice with it. So. <laughs> it's like, I'm not giving it back. I told you the truth. If you want to take a little off, all right. What's amazing to me, however, is that when we read the Gospels, and we see the Lord's rescue mission launched to save mankind from their sins. Contrary to our expectation, he does not recruit or rely upon special forces for his mission. He does not prioritize the best of the best or the right stuff, not even the few, the proud, the Marines, right? At the top of your bulletin is really the central point I want you to hear this morning, and that's this. Surprisingly, the ministry of Jesus is not directed to nor dependent upon the elite, but rather Jesus shows compassion for the marginalized, and he enlists forgiven sinners to be his ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And this is kind of a, an inversion to what we might expect. It's an inversion to the way that the world works. It is, in fact, part of the upside-down kingdom, as I've talked about it here a few weeks ago, that God is not about recruiting the religious elite, the powerful, the influential, the popular, the pretty. God does not need a celebrity endorsement. But it's funny how often we think this way. We think something like... Uh, Oh, let's take a football player. Let's take Aaron Rodgers. Oh, if only someone like Aaron Rodgers would become a devout Christian and an outspoken ambassador for Jesus Christ. Boy, just think what God could do through that man, right? Or we'll go to basketball if football's not your thing. I was going to pick on the Cowboys, but that's, you know, I got to pace myself here. Let's go to LeBron James. Oh, if only LeBron James would bow the knee and come to a saving knowledge of the true king, right? Oh, let's think how God could really use a LeBron James. That is not how God works. That's not how he works. It's complete inversion. In fact, Jesus puts it very succinctly in our passage this morning where he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's after what we might call the B team. That's you and me. That's you and me. If you turn your hand out over, I want to do a little bit of hermeneutics here. Hermeneutics is a fancy word for Bible interpretation, just having some skills for good interpretation. And we're going to do just a little bit of that before we dive in. Good Bible reading is not always just reading closely or myopically, but good Bible reading steps back and sees the whole 
and is able to look at things widely as well. And sometimes when we step back and kind of get a wide, uh, a wide view of what's going on, we're able to see not just what the author has said, but what the author is doing with what has been said. And so I wanted to show you kind of where we've been and sort of some patterns, almost a patchwork, if you will, of how the gospel of Mark is composed in these early stages. So first of all, we looked at the preparation of Jesus. And we saw kind of three parts of that. He was announced by John the Baptist. He was affirmed by the Father and the Spirit in his baptism. And then he is taken out into the wilderness and he, is, he overcomes temptation there. This is all kind of showing you his preparation for ministry. Then we saw the proclamation of Jesus. That is what he preached. And we saw really three distinct messages there. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe and follow me. Then we saw the power of Jesus on display. And again, there was really three sort of pictures of it. Uh, he taught as one with authority. With authority, he casts out demons. And again, with authority, he healed the sick. So we saw his power and authority on display. And today, uh, we see the compassion of Jesus on display, particularly for the marginalized. And we're given, again, three vignettes, if you will. He heals a leper. He heals a man paralyzed. And he hangs out with sinners. And right about the time you get a nice pattern going, right, with the concept and three examples of it, then, of course, the pattern breaks. And next week, we see the superiority of Jesus over religion, or what we might call religious formalism. And we'll look at that next week. But overall, what I want you to see is, is kind of as we identify these, these triplets or these couplets, we see how they all have a particular theme in common, and we're able to focus on that, not to see not just what Mark is saying, but what he's doing with what he's saying. So we have a leper with a health condition, paralytic with a physical condition, tax collectors and a tax collector and sinners with a social con condition. And what they all sort of have in common and how they're brought together here is that these folks are all on the outside looking in. They represent the marginalized in society. Those who would normally have a tough time getting close to or getting a hearing from a popular figure like Jesus. They're not the mainstream. They're not the in crowd. They are the ones typically left out. And the good news that we can take from this this morning is this. If you are one who has felt like you were on the outside looking in. Not good enough for God. Too much baggage. A life a little bit too messy. Background a little too stained. A little bit too broken still. Then I have good news for you. If you have all the wrong stuff. You are first in line for the kingdom of God. First in line, you've got priority. As Jesus says that I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The surprise of the gospel is this, those who think they need it the least or those who think they're the most righteous are the ones furthest away from the gospel. And those who know that they're broken through and through are the ones most likely to respond to the grace of God. That's the great inversion there. Paul highlighted something similar in 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 26, he said this, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And I just pause here and tell you, Christian, if you're in the family of God, it is by his grace and you are one of these folks, as am I. We're the B team. We're the folks that didn't bring much to the party, but God brought everything to us and overwhelmed us with grace and mercy. And that is the way of our God. Also understand this, that God's choosing of the weak and the foolish and the lowly things of the world, that's not just a tactical maneuver by God for effectiveness, but it emanates from his very heart. His heart is to heal the broken, to pursue the lost, to rescue the sinner. And so our first point this morning I want you to grasp is this, and this is really the big point. Jesus had compassion on the marginalized. It comes from his very heart. Chapter one, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. And so he heals this leper. I don't want to presume that you, you know what leprosy is or kind of know sort of the um, implications of it. So I want to walk through this. Might be review for some of you, but this was, uh, leprosy was a severe skin condition, very, very contagious. Uh, and it sort of resulted in what we might call some severe social distancing, <laughs> okay? More than six feet. Uh, and similar to maybe something like hepatitis C or AIDS, Leprosy also carried with it sort of a stigma, a suspicion, if you will. Not just a fear of contagion, but kind of like, where have you been? What have you been doing? What have you been up to? I don't want to get it. And also, if you came into contact with someone who was a leper, it would render you unclean for ceremonial worship. You would have to go through a cleansing process. So they really avoided lepers. In fact, uh, it, it basically produced kind of a multi-layer stigma that pushed lepers literally to the outskirts of town, to the margins. They were literally and figuratively marginalized. Uh, so you would have to live on the outskirts of town. But when you had to come to town, you had to come to Fred's or get some water or get some food or something like that. Anytime you might come into contact with somebody, you had to declare yourself unclean. Can you imagine that? Your clothes would have to be kind of ripped and tattered so that you could signal from people far away that you were a leper. And, you, and, and I just learned this this past week. You had to actually wear a covering over your face. Interesting. 
And so against this backdrop, I think we're sort of made to ask ourselves, how did Jesus feel about this person and about their situation? And there's a word here in the text, and maybe it stood out to you. Uh, In fact, I'll be honest with you, reading over the passage again this week, I thought, I'm not sure I've ever seen that word before. You know what it was? Indignant. Did that get your attention? I was like, whoa, I don't remember that. And uh, I will tell you, that is kind of a, a newer translation that is given by the 2011 version of the NIV, which is what I preach from. But it's not one that is common among other translations. So this is one of those times where it's good to, uh, to kind of show you, it's good to refer to a numerous translations as you're, as you're reading along. But let me just give you an example of this. Uh, the 1987 version of the NIV, let me preface all of this. We're about to go into the word nerd section of our sermon this morning. I tried it on first service and they did okay. So you've got some competition. So hang with me here, okay? All right. The 1987 of the NIV has filled with compassion. And I go, yeah, that's what I know. That's what I remember. The NAS, New American Standard, moved with compassion. King James, same thing, moved with compassion. And the ESV, moved by pity. So that's how they have rendered it. So the question is, why did the 2011 version of the NIV come up with indignant? That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked me that. Here's why. So we have um, lots of manuscripts uh, in the original language. Most of them have the translation that we're used to, moved with compassion, filled with compassion. But there are a few translate or a few manuscripts that have a different word there that can be translated indignant or angry or outraged. And so the translation committee of the 2011 NIV thought this. This was their, their thinking or their rationale for translating it this way. They thought, you know, it's more likely that an overzealous scribe would soften the word than that they would amplify the word. So that's why they translated it that way. I'll let you take that up with the committees. And I'm just going to sort of preach through the brackets here. And I want to just sort of consider both, if you will. First of all, if we were to accept the minority manuscript position that it ought to be indignant, then we have to ask the question, what was he indignant about? Right? To whom or to what was this outrage or this anger or this indignation directed? And there's three possible answers for that. The first would be this. Well, maybe he was indignant. He was outraged that a leper would come up to him because that was not supposed to happen. Does that make sense from the passage at all? No. All right, the second one would be, well, maybe it was the question, if you're willing, you could heal me. And maybe Jesus is like, "Ah, ah, ah, are you kidding me? Of course I'm willing. So maybe that's the indignation. Possible, kind of weak, all right. Or the third one could be this. Maybe in seeing the man, and seeing the distortion and the degradation of his physical body and his life. He was indignant and outraged at the situation he lived in. What do you think? I'm going with three on that one. So if we accept that translation, I think that's what that's aimed at. And this would not be the first time that we would see Jesus express such strong emotion over one whose life is in shambles and crumbled up like this. Remember when he goes to visit his good friend Lazarus in John chapter 11, after Lazarus has died. And the sisters come out and they grieve. They fall at his feet. Oh, Jesus, 
if you had been here. And he sees their grief and their pain. And then the townspeople come up from Jerusalem and he sees their pain and their anger and frustration at the loss of Lazarus. And what is Jesus' response? Do you remember? Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. We know he didn't weep because he thought Lazarus was gone. He knew he was gonna raise him. He wept over the grief and the pain that the world was feeling at their lost friend. So it's possible. It's possible that this word indignation is right here, but I will say it this way. In seeing this man's disfigurement, in seeing what leprosy had caused him and how it had pushed him to the outskirts of society and robbed him of whole life and human flourishing, Jesus was deeply moved with compassion at the least and very possibly roused to anger over the effects of this debilitating disease in his life. When Jesus saw a person who was twisted and distorted by what are the inevitable consequences of sin, he saw the debilitating effect of disease and the horror of death and grief. He himself was grieved. What he was not was indifferent. Deeply moved, filled with compassion. And I, I look at that and I think it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul rejoices in 1 Corinthians when he says this, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Or when the Apostle John rejoices in Revelation when he pictures sort of this end time picture of what God is doing in Revelation 21, he says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I tell you how I relate to this right now. My grandmother, Kay Hoy, lives in Michigan. She doesn't remember her own daughter from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. As dementia has set in and as she falls about every two weeks and breaks new bones. And you see the slow decay of a body falling apart and heading someday towards death. And yet the glory is that God is going to reverse all of these things. And my, because of my grandmother's faith in Jesus, she's going to be restored to wholeness and to beauty and to goodness. And I think Jesus has these kinds of beautiful pictures of what God is up to against the contrast of this decay that this man is living in. Notice also that Jesus touched the man as he healed him. I don't think that's insignificant. We, we know we have examples in the gospels of Jesus healing remotely, right? Just a spoken word and somebody far away is healed. Uh, we, we know that he can command the demonic, the demons to come out of one who is possessed. We know that as a part of the Godhead, he was instrumental in creation at the beginning of the world and spoke it into existence, right? So all that to say, is a touch necessary for healing to occur? No. So why touch the man? Why touch the man? 
And I would say that with his touch, Jesus conveyed more than healing, but love and acceptance and compassion and even just pure affection. At the beginning of the pandemic here, I've told you this before, but it bears repeating or it's worth repeating. There was a single woman in our church who put in her prayer request about how this was affecting her. And she said, I haven't been touched in eight weeks. And that really just broke my heart to think about how a single woman was going through this experience when things were really in lockdown a while ago. I haven't been touched in eight weeks. She knew she hadn't been touched. And more than that, she had it counted out. She could remember the last time that she had good human touch. And she knew what was missing in the meantime. And I think that is something that Jesus gives to this man. How long had it been since he had been touched? Months? Years? And I think when he touched him, he did not just simply heal his skin, but I believe it was a balm for his soul. So we have our second case study here. And don't worry, we're going to pick up the pace now here. Secondly, he healed and forgave the paralytic. Chapter two, verse one. A few days later, when Jesus entered, again entered Capernaum, the people heard he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, he took his mat and he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Uh, this might be one of my favorite miracles of Jesus uh, that we have in the New Testament. Uh, first of all, you got to love this guy's friends, right? I hope you have friends like this. These are the kind of guys that will actually help you move, you know? I love that bumper sticker that says, yes, this is my truck. No, I will not help you move. <laughs> I relate. To, I understand that. But these are the kind of guys, no, they will help you move. They'll help you move your woodshed. They'll help you... Uh, Take care of that moose that you shouldn't have shot and dropped inside the pond. They'll help you get it out. These are those kind of guys. I, I, I look at this story and I go, these are Alaskan guys. <laughs> these are guys like us. Let's get her done. Imagine this scene. They come to the house. They've got their buddy. They love this man. It took four of them to carry him there, which is just an indication of how bad his situation. He's not limping, right? He needs to be absolutely carried. They bring him to the house. It's full. Can't get in. What are we going to do? We're going up. We're going up. We're going in through the roof. And we're going to bless these people with a little home makeover. And we're going to leave them a skylight. You're welcome, right? 
Imagine being inside. You're inside, you're listening to Jesus. Like, man, this guy can teach. He's got some chops. Listen to him. This is incredible. What's that sound? <laughs> some scratching up there. Someone let the cat out? Is the cat up in the roof here? What, what's going on? And all of a sudden, it parts and they start dropping a man in. That's an incredible, an incredible scene. And I love what it says here. I mean, he just delights in their faith. He sees their faith and says, son, your sins are forgiven. He seizes upon the moment to reveal his true identity, not just as one who would heal and provide food and cast out demons, or even just to deliver Israel from Roman oppression. He shows himself to be one who can deliver mankind from the guilt and the punishment of sin. This man came into the room through the roof, completely immobile. And he walked out the front door on his own willpower, carrying his mat. And that was the smaller of the two miracles that had happened that day. Forgiveness was much greater. And we move to our third round here of interaction with what we would call the marginalized. He calls sinners to become followers. Verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, let's talk about Levi here. Levi is a tax collector. Not a real popular gig. Not then, not now. By the way, tomorrow is November 1st. Your property taxes are due tomorrow if you pay that way. Little public service announcement there. But these aren't just tax collectors. Tax collectors were notorious for overcharging people and lining their own pockets. So they were thieves. Worse than that, Levi is a Jewish man and he is conscripted with Rome to take taxes from his own people. So he's a traitor. So he's a thief and a traitor. In fact, being a Jewish tax collector, this is the penalty it would get you sort of in the community. You're kicked out of the synagogue. You can't come to church with us. You're stealing from us. You're a traitor. And so that's, that's kind of the stigma attached to that. In fact, it was so bad that it even sort of was applied to your family. They couldn't come either. And what we find here is that even this group of marginalized people found a visitation from Jesus. Jesus came for those in need. In other words, so there's two implications of this for you and me. Number one, if you're on the outside looking in, if you're thinking, my life's a mess, you don't even know the guilt that I have, I got a record, <laughs> whatever. Jesus came for you. His grace is sufficient for you. And surprise, surprise, you're closer to the kingdom of God than one who thinks they've got it all together. Tim Keller has said it this way, the gospel tells us that you are more wicked than you ever dared believe, but 
you are more loved and accepted in Christ than you'd ever dared hope. If you're on the outside looking in, good news, Jesus came for you. The second point for us is, is this. If you're on the inside, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you'd better be looking out. Because you've been called to be not just one who sits in the seat of those who are saved, but one who is an ambassador for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, it's really easy to say this, but I want you to think about your own heart and your own perspective as you run across people in town, at your place of business, in your neighborhood. Do you have the eyes and the heart of Jesus for them? I want to tell you, I don't always have it. And I ran into it this morning. My habit on a Sunday morning, most mornings, but Sunday morning, I want to be here by 7.15. I get up, start my truck, and I drive to my coffee hut. And they know me well. They have my drink waiting for me when I get there. And on my way there, I'm driving down Farmer's Loop Road as it kind of becomes university between the transfer site and the university, you know, that little corridor right in there, okay? I'm driving down there this morning, and I see something in the road. I'm like, is that a moose? I think that's a person. Is that a person on the bike? Right in the middle of the road, like in the run you over kind of place. And so I slow way down and as I get closer, I can see what it is. It's a person and I'm guessing that they're homeless based on the way that they were dressed. And they're walking right down the middle of the road with a vacuum cleaner, <laughs> with a vacuum cleaner. And I'm, I'm sitting there and my first thoughts are, man, you gotta get out of the road, you're gonna get hit. My second thought is, what are you doing with the vacuum cleaner? You don't have electricity. <laughs> and I'm just kind of shaking my head like, oh, Fairbanks, you know, you see some of the funniest things. And then I go and get my Americano and I come back and I'm thinking about my message. And I look down sort of the dirt road that goes back behind the stores there, you know, and there's a little bit of a vagrant population back there. And I'm suddenly cut to the heart with the reality of, I'm gonna stand before you this morning and say that Jesus has compassion for the marginalized and I laughed at that man and got my coffee and drove to church. I think there's some parables about me in the scriptures. <laughs> Do we have God's heart for the marginalized? For those who are on the outside looking in? And I want to tell you, it's costly, right? I mean, what am I, I'm going to stop on my way to get my Americano and say, hey, what you doing with the vacuum? I mean, you know, really, what's this going to look like here? What's this guy going to need? It's hard to know what to do, but I want to give you three things to consider. Number one, these are risks that, it's, that, that are there for us if we're going to actually do what Jesus did and calls us to do. Number one, we're going to have to risk getting dirty. Jesus touched a man with leprosy. He touched him. So you may find yourself at a shelter. You may find yourself at the pregnancy clinic here in town. You may find yourself just talking to your scruffy neighbor, not the nice clean one, the scruffy one. But it might cost you getting dirty. Secondly, if you're going to care for the marginalized, it might cost you your voice. You may need to advocate for one who can't advocate for themselves. It might be the unborn. The evangelicals are doing a great job there. But you know what? If we're pro-life, we've got to be for the whole of life not just for the unborn, but for the elderly who don't have a voice. We need to be for the whole of life if, if dignity is important to us. So it might be advocating for the elderly or the disabled 
or the poor. Jesus advocated for this man who was dropped in through a roof and couldn't speak for himself. He healed him and he saved him. Thirdly, it might cost you some risk of reputation. If Jesus hung out with the riffraff and the bar hoppers and the incarcerated and the tax collectors, who is he going to have us hang out with? Church folk? We need to be those, if we're on the inside by God's grace, we need to be looking outside, carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ to an unsaved world. I love this line. I'm going to close with this, this line from Richard Wilbur in his great poem. I've used it many times. He stole it from Augustine. So this line is actually goes all the way back to the fourth century, but it's this love calls us to the things of this world. We're here for a particular time. This isn't an accident. God put you here and by his grace, he saved you and you're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. So carry his message to those who need it. Let's pray. Our Lord, it's easy to love the lovely people. Give us the strength to love those who are marginalized. If we're on the inside, Lord, help us look to the outside. Help us to remember the glory of what you've given us in Christ, forgiveness of sin and a place in the kingdom of God. And may we be true ambassadors for you and for that glorious message. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.